episode 34. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Benji Jack from Board Rounds about ER readmissions. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Benji Jack from Board Rounds, and he brings up a point I have probably not thought enough about, and that is that the ER, the emergency room, is really the hub of patients who have fallen out of their care paths, whatever that care path might be, whatever disease exacerbation they might be having, be it from asthma or their diabetes or mental illness or a cardiovascular issue. When I've thought about readmissions in the past, I'm, I mostly think about it from a disease-specific point of view. In other words, we start to think about it from the inpatient perspective and what is going on on that particular floor of the hospital. But the emergency room is really a hub for all patients who have fallen out of their care paths assuming they're there for some exacerbation of a chronic condition. And that gives a really interesting opportunity to evaluate the non-clinical reasons that patients readmit, which is certainly part of the readmission equation. I think that's pretty inarguable at this point. So being able to look at the data or focusing on the ER as this hub enables any provider organization to start to really understand the consequence of these non-clinical conditions. For example, it doesn't matter what the patient's problem might be or, or what their, their chronic condition might be. If they can't figure out how to get a ride to the hospital for a follow-up appointment, that's going to matter. <laughs> and it's certainly going to impact their, their patient outcomes. Or, for example, if the patient really doesn't understand who they should be following up with, it doesn't matter what the topic of the conversation is going to be at that follow-up visit. If they don't understand who to call in the first place, they're not going to make it there. This is just one thing that I talk about with Benji today. I feel like anyone who is working at a provider organization or working to improve the patient outcomes and lower the readmissions in pretty much any disease category. This is interesting information to, to contemplate as we think about our strategies moving forward. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. I'm speaking today with Dr. Benji Jacks from Board Rounds. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Benji. Hi, Stacey. Thanks for having me. So how did a nice physician like you get yourself into the role of an entrepreneur? Sure. So I graduated from Cornell Medical School this past May. And while I was in medical school, I was working in emergency rooms, both in New York City uh, and in Philadelphia and in Baltimore. And we would send patients home with a piece of paper with instructions on what to do next. As I did this over and over and we would see patients come back to the ER, it got me thinking you know, that most patients aren't following their instructions and that perhaps something could be done about that. And so I ended up co-founding board rounds to make sure the patients leave the emergency room quickly and safely and don't have to come back. 
Talk about board rounds for for a moment. What what exactly is it? We're a technology-enabled service where when a patient leaves the emergency room, we find out about the patient, and then we reach out to patients by phone call and text message to help coordinate care. So it's a very simple solution where we help the patient get where they need to go after they leave and make sure that that continuity of care is there. So you reach out to them via phone call and text message. How exactly does that happen? Sure. So an emergency room notifies us when a patient gets discharged, and I can talk more about what the mechanics of that are. But one way or another, they notify us that the patient is leaving. So say Mrs. Jones comes in for asthma and gets discharged and needs follow-up with a pulmonologist. So we find that out. And then the patient will receive a text message or phone call from us, sometimes uh, while they're still in the ER or right after they leave or sometimes the next day. And we'll say, Mrs. Jones, we're going to help you, you know, get this appointment with the pulmonologist. We'll schedule that for her and then help her get there. So it's not just limited to appointments. We also look at what else will optimally benefit this patient, uh, such as transportation or education from a nurse on the phone, something like that. So it's really all about us being an advocate for the patient and helping them get where they need to go. In that example, if I'm Mrs. Jones, I have gone to the ER the next morning, I wake up, I'm having some breakfast, and my phone rings, and it's actually a live person on the phone who is helping me make it through my my day and follow the instructions that were given. That's right, because most patients don't follow or don't understand their instructions otherwise. And from Mrs. Jones's perspective, she's not doing anything. I mean, that she was just minding her own business when that phone call came in or that text message came into her phone. That's right. So we're taking the onus off the patient and, again, helping them navigate the system so that they don't have to worry about it. Very interesting. And that it reminds me of the the healthcare navigators, which is a term which is being bandied about more and more. So this is kind of like a healthcare navigator on demand, or not even on demand, that just the, a genie that appears. Right. That's a, <laughs> that's a good way of characterizing it. It's, it's healthcare navigation, but it's specific to the emergency room, and it's powered by technology. So in some cases, a human doesn't call the patient at all. We'll interact with them completely via text message. We'll instantly schedule an appointment for them, and no one ever picks up the phone to call the patient. But of course, you and I can think of many examples where we need someone to pick up the phone, and so there's always someone ready to do that. Before we get into, I'm, I'm very fascinated by what the, the back end of this looks like and how much of it is automated. But before we go there, let's take this from the, the doctor's perspective. So if I'm the ER doctor and I've got a patient that I'm ready to discharge, what does my experience look like? Your experience under the status quo, and for, for all the uh, emergency physicians out there listening, I hope that they identify with this. But the experience under the status quo is typically handing the patient discharge instructions with a phone number to call. And most emergency physicians will tell you that as they're handing the patient this paper, they're thinking to themselves, this patient is never going to make this phone call. And in fact, most don't. And that patient might come back to the emergency department the next day. So instead, that doctor knows that board rounds will reach out to the patient 
to make sure that they take that next step instead of, again, just asking the patient to do it. What do I, as a, as a physician in the emergency room, what do I need to do differently, if anything? So instead of handing them the piece of paper, what am I, what am I now doing? That speaks to how we find out that a patient is in the emergency room. So there are a few ways that that can happen. One way is that we can be sent a notification from the electronic medical record, in which case the discharging physician doesn't have to do anything. We've also built a mobile app for emergency physicians where if uh, Dr. Smith is discharging a patient and wants that patient to receive board round services, they can send us a request securely through this app. Uh, And then finally, in some emergency departments, we've actually put uh, a person on site. We call them a concierge. And we equip that person with our mobile app. And so the concierge uh, helps handle the discharge process for the patient. So, So there are three different ways of doing it. In some ways, or in some implementations, the Uh, emergency physician doesn't have to do anything at all. And in some, they take an extra 15 seconds and uh, enter the patient's information into our app. What do you think that most, well, I mean, obviously you know this, what's the entry point for most hospitals? I mean, do most hospitals start out with your second option there, which is equip all the ER doctors with with the mobile app as kind of a pilot? Or do they tend to integrate with the EHR immediately or put someone in, in um, the concierge in place immediately? It's typically the concierge model that we do first because it's very, very easy for the hospital to try it. Uh, so what we typically do is we'll staff the emergency room for free for one month with our concierge. And at the, the, the staff in the emergency room doesn't have to do anything. And all of the patients leaving the ED get follow-up care. And then at the end of the month, we demonstrate through data the impact that we've had. And then we can figure out things like EMR integration after that. So we've designed it to make it very, very easy for hospitals to be able to try our service. Uh, and that's intentional. So that you can really demonstrate results very rapidly as a as a phase one. So I'm still fascinated by what goes on in, in the, the ER. So now you've got this concierge in place. So I'm a doctor. I'm working with Mrs. What was her name? Mrs. Smith. <laughs> in our example. <laughs> I think it's Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Mrs. Jones. Jones and Dr. Smith. Got it. <laughs> you know, so Mrs. Jones is sitting there. Dr. Smith is sitting there. There's a concierge at a desk, which is, you know, across the room or something. You know, how, how does that transaction does, you know, Dr. Jones raise his hand and say, you know, we got a live one here or what happens? Again, it, it varies depending on the hospital and the way that the hospital wants to do it. And we, you know, I'm sure that some of your listeners are thinking, well, someone at a desk would never work in our hospital or someone walking around the ED would never work in our hospital, which is why we do it in a flexible way. But typically, uh, the person is sort of floats around the emergency room. So when a patient's ready to go, then a a doctor will grab the concierge and say, oh, okay, Mrs. Jones is leaving in bed two and uh, make sure that she gets primary care follow-up, something like that. Fantastic. Okay. So then what happens is the concierge walks in with the with your app, the Board Rounds app, and I'm assuming that the app is programmed in such a way so that Mrs. Jones gets put into, you know, do you have sort of clinical pathways or, or tracks that Mrs. Jones would be put into that's that are figured out in advance or what happens next? So we are following the instructions of the discharging physician. 
uh, more so than you know putting our own clinical pathways on top of that. So if the discharging physician says that Mrs. Jones needs a follow-up with a pulmonologist, that's what we'll do. On the back end, we do a bit more around, again, what else will optimally benefit this patient, such as transportation. So Mrs. Jones lives far from the subway. Let's also figure out if we can get her transportation. But most of that happens not at the point of care, but afterwards. Does the concierge have sort of a series of questions that he slash she is asking Mrs. Jones at that point in order to figure out the stuff or? Yes. If you're getting at what happens at the point of care versus what happens afterward, again, it depends on the patient and the exact situation. We're reaching out to the patient after they leave regardless. So there, we can always get more information that way if we need it. So basically, you're asking Mrs. Jones what her phone number is or, or whether right. she yes. uses text messages. Correct. And then it, it kind of sounds like there's actually the physician hands the, the concierge, in this particular example, obviously, the discharge instructions. It says, call a pulmonologist. And then you've got people that sit behind the scenes that would figure out what pulmonologist would work the best. You know, so it's actually a human body that's kind of actually a care navigator, or is there some more automated navigation that's going on? It's both. So a human sees the request, but we're also doing some automation around matching the patient's insurance with a provider that takes that insurance. Uh, of course, we're taking the patient's location into account. So we're helping them find a doctor that works for them for follow-up. Let's go behind the scenes. I have so many questions. I don't know which to ask first. <laughs> um, so why don't we go behind the scenes for a sec and take a an x-ray look at what's going on metaphorically inside that that phone app that you have. So the phone app is connecting to a phone bank of, of navigators that are each assigned cases? Is, is that kind of what's going on back there? Yes. So the app is really a glorified digital clipboard. The app doesn't do very much. It's really sending the requests to the backend service. And then on the backend, we have a social worker that we employ full time. And then we also can access an on-demand call center as we need it. Then that's how we're reaching out to patients, again, by either phone or text. So patients, to, to emphasize one point, patients don't ever download anything. It's not like we say to the patient, download this app and we're going to talk to you through the app. It's much simpler than that. It's just phone and regular text message. Basically, you've got resources, you know, human resources on the 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 back end that are receiving these discharge instructions and then helping the patient follow them in a, a kind of a one by one individual basis. That's right. And they've got some sort of methodology that they're using back there, as you alluded to. For example, you know, maybe they've got a set of five questions that they're asking, like, Mrs. Jones, can you make it to the subway? So you guys have identified perhaps the most common reasons why pe patients don't follow their instructions? That's right. And we're also building out messaging that we know will resonate with specific patients and figuring out, you know, what can we say to this patient? How do we engage them to make sure that they get that follow up? When is the best time to send reminders? What should those reminders say? Uh, you know, what do we say to a patient to emphasize the importance of their follow-up? Relative to the text messages, is somebody actually got their thumbs going and texting the patient? Or are those texts, you know, it's pick one from column A and one from column B and send them out at these intervals? 
It's both, but there's there's no uh, typing with your thumbs. All, everything is done through this backend platform that we've built. One of our patient navigators looking at the request for Mrs. Jones sees her insurance information, sees her demographics, sees what happened in the ER, can send her a text message. So all of the interaction happens through, uh, through the platform. All right. So let's switch this now to the hospital's perspective, because I'm assuming a lot of this stuff, you know, as you uh, have repeated, this is all very customizable to each hospital in question. So I'm assuming that what happens first is that you sit down with a hospital and go through a, a series of questions in order to build out a system which integrates nicely um, with whatever the hospital's got going on? Correct. So what we hear from most hospitals is that some proportion of patients get some sort of appointment when they leave the ER. Five or 10 percent of patients that are going to this particular clinic, for example, might be scheduled an appointment. But the hospital and the ER don't know if the patients show up, and they don't know what's happening to the other 85, 90% of patients, or 95% or of patients. So we sit down with them, and what hospitals typically want from us is, one, they want to make sure that patients stay in network after they leave the emergency room, because that's a revenue opportunity for the hospital and for the doctors within the health system. Uh, two, they want to improve patient satisfaction. And uh, three, they want to reduce their medical legal liability, make sure that when the patient leaves the emergency room, they're being taken care of. We sit down with them and we figure out where are we going to send patients within the system. The hospital can customize those pathways. So, for example, if uh, they just, say, bought a faculty practice of pulmonologists, we can send patients there first. It's, you're exactly right that it's about customizing it with the hospital. And what if the hospital says something like, well, we already have care navigators? You know, is this something that a hospital could pull off by themselves on the back end? Or is what you're doing by systematizing this and putting some technology around it, is that something that hospitals have difficulty doing themselves? Typically, when hospitals have care navigators in the emergency room, there just isn't enough human power to be able to handle the volume of the ED. Uh, and that's why we've built this system that includes both a human and automated component so that we can handle everyone leaving the emergency department. And on top of that, really having this decision support and these tools to get patients where they need to go quickly and keep them from coming back to the ER. We like to say that it's non-clinical decision support. Using this tool instead of just picking up the phone and calling the patient and saying, you know, hey, do you have an appointment yet? Uh, you know, using the pathways that we've built to, to make that process more robust. So when you're talking about pathways, this is kind of interesting. You know, there, there, there's sort of clinical pathways but it sounds like what you what you're almost talking about is I don't know logistical pathways. That's right. We say logistics. We say non-clinical decision support. Uh, you know, the patient needs a pulmonologist. That's the clinical decision. But how are we going to get them there? How are we going to find them one? How are we going to make sure that they show up? When do they need to go? You know, those are all of the questions that we're helping to answer. That's really interesting because I feel like when. Obviously, the topic of readmissions is kind of a um, scalding hot mess right now. 
And it seems like there are a lot of great minds which are working on attempting to, to, to curb readmissions. One thing that it seems like most will focus on is engaging the patient in a, in a clinical way. But I haven't actually heard much talk relative to engaging the patient logistically. So it sounds like it, it would. Is this your experience as well as both a physician and an entrepreneur? So two pieces. The first is that focus on hospital readmissions. But when people say readmissions, they almost universally mean after inpatient discharge. So th there are about 30 million uh, inpatient admissions a year in the U.S., and about one in five patients will be readmitted to the hospital, and that's the problem that a lot of people focus on. But that's upstairs on the medicine and surgery floors. If you look downstairs in the emergency room, there are actually 100 million emergency room visits per year. And patients are just as likely to visit, to, excuse me, to revisit the emergency room. Uh, one in five patients leaving the emergency room will also come back within 30 days. And most of those revisits happen uh, within nine days. That's the quote-unquote readmissions problem that we're focusing on are those 100 million patients where one in five come back. As far as clinical versus logistical engagement, again, you're right, it is logistical engagement, but it's also engaging the patient around their health and, and why don't they want to come back to the emergency room? Why were they there in the first place? What can we do to help them stay away from the ED? So it's not just take your medicine, it's kind of what else is going on in the bigger picture that we can do to help you. You know, it's interesting what, you, what you're talking about inpatient versus this, this ER readmission dichotomy. One thing that I, I sort of instantly assumed, so now I'm double-checking my instant assumption, is that patients that show up in the ER in many cases might be a failing of the inpatient readmission program. In other words, at least a, a certain percentage of the patients that are, are visiting the ER are people that used to be inpatients and whatever the, whatever the readmit program that they are using upstairs didn't work. That's correct. I don't know off the top of my head what total number of emergency room visits are inpatient revisit, you know, a revisit immediately after an inpatient discharge. We're looking more at, of the patients that, of the 100 million patients a year, over 100 million patients a year that come to the emergency room, about 20%, give or take, it depends on the area, but about 20% will be admitted to the hospital. So we're looking at the 80% that are going home, and that's our real population that Board Rounds focuses on are those people that are sent home and making sure that they don't have to come back. Obviously, there's reimbursement issues with the upstairs readmissions. And sometimes I wonder whether the sudden concern in patient readmissions, you know, how much of that is due to the recent changes relative to readmission reimbursement and the fact that no longer are hospitals being paid for patients that return to the hospital within 30 days. Now I'm kind of translating that to what you guys are doing, and I'm not sure, although enlighten me here, are there reimbursement concerns with a patient that is discharged from the ER and then comes back? Is that a hospital concern? 
It is for a few reasons. Hospitals are more and more uh, entering into contracts with payers where they are penalized based on emergency room revisits. That's one piece of it. Another piece is that patients that revisit the emergency room uh, may be underinsured. And so the hospital needs to cover the cost of caring for that patient again, but isn't being reimbursed for it. And then finally, it's a, a revenue opportunity that if a patient visits the ER and then doesn't follow up within the hospital's network, that's lost revenue. So there's certainly an economic concern there as well. Let's focus on the first thing that you said. So payers are contracting now with hospitals and they're actually checking how many times a a patient was, did the, uh, what do they call it, frequent flying? um, Correct. Into into hospitals. Interesting. Can you give any, you know, sort of details about when and how that sort of contracting started? I was actually very unaware of that. Well, there are two levels of it, you know, in a pay for performance type of contract. So I was talking about this with one of the major hospitals in New York, and one of their major payers has now entered into a pay for performance contract where uh, the hospital gets reimbursed based on all of these specific measures, one of which is how often do patients revisit the emergency room. So that's that's kind of your P for P, pay for performance uh, setup. And then hospitals are also entering into capitated contracts with private payers where the hospital will say, okay, we're going to manage the health of these 10,000 or 100,000 patients and the payer pays them a per patient fee per year or per month. And the hospital has to, you know, eat whatever cost doesn't fall within that fee. So the hospital is then very incentivized to make sure that patients uh, don't come back to the ER. So there are all of these pushes toward value-based care beyond just the Medicare readmission penalty. And we fit squarely into those uh, those incentives. Let me just recap those incentives. So one of them is P4P around ER visits. Another one is the capitated arrangement. Another thing which you had stated earlier was physicians or sorry, patients staying in a network. Obviously, there's financial motivation there, improving patient satisfaction, and then also reducing liability. Would those be sort of the, the big five? Yes, thank you. That's, that was an excellent recap. <laughs> um, and what's interesting, what we hear from customers, and especially from emergency physicians, so to this medical legal liability question, we're the first to admit that's a very difficult thing to measure, the the economic impact that we would have on medical legal liability. But we hear from emergency physicians that that's part of why they love our service is when you ask an ER doctor, so why do you like board rounds? And they say, well, I feel better about sending the patient home. I don't have to worry about it. I know that it's being taken care of. Uh, and so it, it, we we tap into that concern of physicians and of the health system and alleviate that. I'm sure as a physician, that is something that you yourself have experienced. And maybe that's how you kind of keyed on to the fact of this as a need. As I said, during my training in medical school, I certainly sent patients home and wondered what would happen to them. And as I worked with senior physicians uh, who have certainly been through more training and experience than I have, it was a common theme that I heard. And, and so, yes, that uh, that certainly led to part of the development of board rounds. Let's circle back to something that you had mentioned really early on in our conversation, which was the data that is collected 
via board rounds. Could you talk a little bit about that? What kind of data are you collecting and analyzing, I'm assuming? We're collecting really all the data that we can, and we're finding more and more ways to analyze it, particularly with the help of our customers. Things that we're looking at now include you know, how many patients are completing their visits, how many of them are returning to the emergency room versus not, and what impact we're having on that. How many patients are we able to keep within the hospital's network? How many patients are switching from an existing doctor to a doctor within the hospital's network or vice versa, or from one doctor to another within the network and why? How long do patients have to wait, say, for a GI appointment? When is the best availability? When is there limited availability? So pooling all of that together helps the health system understand this quote-unquote leakage problem of patients that leave the system and don't come back, and also the access problem of when patients need care, are they able to receive it? In general, are there enough patients that are visiting the ER in any given quarter or, or you know, month in order to, that there are significant dollars associated with, for example, the leakage that you're talking about? Absolutely. If you look at one of the large emergency rooms uh, in New York City, for example, a, a typical large ER in New York will see 100,000 patients a year. Good proportion of those patients are potential revenue for the health system, and, and most of those are going unrealized. I'm sure there's sort of a spectrum of patients that visit the ER. You're going to have patients that are in there for you know broken legs, and then you're going to have patients that are in there because of a diabetes flare-up or, or something like that. And then obviously there's another kind of cross-section, which is what payer they have. I, I could really see that if, if somebody is in there for, you know, for example, a diabetes flare-up, that there would be a lot of opportunity to, to pull that person into more of a proactive care approach. That's right. We certainly don't cherry pick patients. We're serving everyone leaving the emergency room, but we're helping the health system understand, hey, here are all of these asthma patients, for example, that, that we're seeing that aren't following with pulmonologists in our system. Why is that? What can we do about it? Being able to ask and answer those questions. I mean, how long have you been, probably a question I should have asked you at the very beginning, how long has board rounds been extant? And collecting uh, we, data. We've, we've been collecting data since early last year, but the bulk of it came in the third and fourth quarters of last year. Do you see from that data that you're collecting just very in general, you know, kind of as a, as a universal number, that the data that you're collecting would correspond with what I call on my side of the business cross-driving conditions? In other words diabetes, hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic, um, your doctor, help me out here. Episodes. <laughs> Episodes. Or for example, um, asthma attacks or mental illnesses is another cost-driving condition or cardiovascular concerns. I mean, do, do, you, do you see that the, the data that you're collecting would reflect the conditions which most provider organizations and, and payers believe are the most costly conditions? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, even anecdotally, there 
are a huge number of patients that visit the emergency room for exacerbations of chronic conditions. And so there's definitely low-hanging fruit there as far as cutting those costs. That's very interesting because I think that there's sort of a perception of an emergency room as being, as capturing patients from so many different aspects. And I'm sure acute episodes or acute reasons for for being in the emergency room seem to be, you know, something that most people think of. It, it's very interesting to think about it as as almost a safety net to, to make sure that those that have ex, um, exacerbations of chronic conditions are also, are kind of pulled out of that, you know, snowballing down the hill and pulled back into a, a care setting, which is going to actually be proactive as opposed to reactive. Yes. I mean, that's... That's our thesis is that that opportunity is there and, and we have seen that it is there and that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to make sure that patients that, again, the patients that visit the ER don't need to come back. If it's an acute condition, to make sure that they get follow-up so that that condition doesn't worsen. And if it's a chronic condition, to make sure that there's either not another exacerbation or, or just that you know that condition is being treated on the outpatient side where it's best treated. From your unique perspective, what do you think that one critical success factor to improve patient outcomes while reducing costs is? What's the one thing that if people are going to focus on, they'd get the most results for their effort? I think it's really engaging the patient and engaging the patient at the point of care and afterwards and really meeting them where they are. Everyone has stories about seeing a patient being sent home and they don't understand their instructions or they're confused about what's next. And if you look at the literature on why patients come back to the emergency room, it's it's because they're scared or confused. So really addressing that with the patient and helping them understand their condition and what needs to be done to alleviate it, I, I think that's the most important thing and that's what we've seen. How can people reach you or learn more about board rounds if they're interested? You can visit our website. It's www.boardrounds.com. Or you can email me, Benji at boardrounds.com, B-E-N-J-I at B-O-A-R-D-R-O-U-N-D-S.com. So I'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd want to talk about, Benji? No, I think that this has been really great. Um, I hope that your listeners found it worthwhile, and I hope to hear from some of them as we're, we're excited about what we're doing and we you know, we'd love to to talk with anyone else who's interested. Well, I thank you so much for being on the program today. My pleasure. Thanks, Stacey. Links to everything discussed during the episode today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. I'll tell you the other thing that you will find at RelentlessHealthValue.com, and that is a way to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe, The cool thing is that you don't have to remember to go to the website every week to download the new episode. It will automatically be sent to you in one of two ways. The first way is you can type in your email address in the, there's a a sidebar on the right hand side of the website where you will find a place that you could type in your email address and then you will get an email once a week with a, a link to download the episode. So that's one way to go. The second is is also in that same right-hand sidebar on the Relentless Health Value website, you will find a large orange dot. If you click on that dot, 
then you'll get taken to a place where you can click on the subscribe button in iTunes. If you click on that, then each week your iTunes will automatically download the episode, which you could choose to listen to on your computer or on the podcast app on your mobile phone. If you enjoyed this episode, please, I beg you, uh, it would be really, really helpful if you would rate and review the show either on iTunes or interact with us on Twitter. Our uh, Twitter handle is Relentless with only one S, health. So Relentless with only one S, health. I would love to hear from you. We would find it very inspiring over here at the Relentless Health Value podcast. I thank you so much for tuning in and so much for spending the time with us. Thank you.